0: We are in Isaiah 1, we are taking a journey through Isaiah with Advent, which is very unusual, and uh, Christina is going to come up and read Isaiah chapter 1 for us. Let's give her a little hand.
1: Can I use this tape?
0: Yes, please. I'll
1: step over here. This is my small Bible. The vision concerning Judah and Ju- Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos saw... During the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty, "'Had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. "'We would have been like Gomorrah. "'Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. "'Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. "'The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me?' says the Lord. "'I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of fat, and fattened animals. "'I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. "'When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you?' This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New Moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your New Moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, righteousness, used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your choice wine diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities." I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the fire.
0: Lord Jesus, would you be pleased with the reading of your holy word this morning, and Holy Spirit, would you allow us to gaze into it and then uh, be changed by it, sitting under the anointing of your presence and in the anointing of your word on this day. In your name we pray, amen. Christina, thank you. Isaiah's is a mouthful, isn't it? You read that and you go, oh my goodness. I mean, where, where, where do we start and where do we go? And I was uh, sort of reflecting upon um, Advent and the Christmas season, and I'm, I, the Lord keeps bringing me back uh, sort of to Isaiah, and there's a number of reasons that I just love the book of Isaiah. It's very hard to read though, isn't it? You read it and you're like, what? And there's little parts of it that you probably see and you go, oh my goodness, I think I understand that. And, and then you go on and you sort of get lost again. And what I want to do is I sort of want to set the table uh, with, with Advent and the book of Isaiah. And then I want to break this chapter into four parts and then I want to make some application into our own lives. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so a couple things just to start with. Um, in the early 1900s, uh, there was a movement afoot theologically. So, theologians at seminaries around the world began to say um, that because of the predictive nature of the book of Isaiah, so they're saying that the, the Isaiah so accurately predicted what happened in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, that it had to be written after the fact. You follow me? So you got all these theologians who are going, there is no way, because when we look through the book of Isaiah, it is so fiercely accurate on what happened to our Jesus, that there is no way it was written 750 years before Jesus came. And so what these uh, theologians began to do is slowly uh, discredit the veracity of Scripture, and they called into question and people began to sort of wonder well maybe maybe someone did write this portion of the bible in arrears maybe they knew the Jesus story and they actually wrote it looking back as opposed to 750 years looking forward to the coming of Christ talk about shooting holes in your faith right so the question becomes does this bible hold water does our faith actually stand up to reason And this amazing thing happened in 1946, and then some more of it happened in 47 and 48, but there's this little place on the banks of the Dead Sea in Israel. And some people, some Bedouin shepherds, actually came across some scrolls in a number of different caves. You know what I'm talking about? They're the Dead Sea Scrolls. And out of these caves actually came the entire book of Isaiah, word for word in 1947. And when they they tested the scrolls, what came forth was that these scrolls were most certainly written over 100 years before Christ ever walked the earth and they were translations of previous scrolls. So here's what happened. All these theologians are going, hey, 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 this is all made up. Somebody sat down after Jesus and they wrote the book of Isaiah and then they claimed that, oh look, it was a prophetic book foretelling the coming of Christ and it got the whole Christian world in a bit of an uproar. And then these scrolls came out of the ground proving that Isaiah was written prior to Christ walking on the earth. Now, does that prove that our God exists? Probably not entirely. Does that prove that the Bible is the, uh, the unchangeable, immutable word of God? Maybe not entirely, but here's what it does. It absolutely shredded the notion that someone had written Isaiah after the fact. And it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Isaiah is a book that was in fact predictive of the coming of our Christ Jesus. So when you read things like what we just read and you take little portions and you go, oh my goodness, this is exactly what happened in the life of Christ Jesus. You can know with assurance that Christ, the word in the beginning was the? Word and the word was with God and the word was Christ, wrote this word through the prophet Isaiah. So when we read these words, you literally begin to go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So so this was written 750 years before Jesus foretelling the coming of Christ, which is why I think it's very important for Advent. Now, huge chapter we just read, lots to sort of get your arms around. A couple other things that I think are very important as we set the table sort of for this chapter. Uh, Isaiah's ministry was a total failure. And if you measured uh, ministry success by numbers, converts, lives changed, nobody ever listened to him. 60 years he preached, nothing ever changed. And yet today... We know the book of Isaiah. You know portions of Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament. You ever heard the song Handles Messiah? The whole song is lyric by lyric comes from the book of Isaiah. The other thing that I think is amazing is if you look at Hebrews 11, you guys know what you know the, the faith, sort of the hall of faith for the, the people in the in the. Bible, you, you may want to write this down, but it's Hebrews 11. I think it's 27, um, 37, excuse me. But uh, it actually says that um, there were people who were sawn in two. It's kind of gruesome, right? I've always wondered about that, and I just, I just discovered. I always wondered who, who was sawn in two. Isaiah was sawn in two. That's how he died under King Manasseh of Judah. He had 60 years of preaching. Um, and writing and and, and ministering, and at the end of his life, he was sawn in two. Oh my goodness, how's that for a Merry Christmas this morning? I'm glad some of you laughed, thank you. A couple other things that I love about this um, is... he came and was sent, and um, really this vision that's introduced in Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2, it's a vision concerning Judah, and he names four kings that he ministers under. Um, And then he actually goes in verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Um, This vision is really the, the, the entirety of the vision of the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. It's the whole thing. And and so this was probably not at the beginning of his ministry, it was probably somewhere in the middle of his ministry, but this was kind of the essence and the crux of his ministry. The other thing that I think is fascinating, before we we really dig into the the word here, is Isaiah, as a book, um, is a little short version or a mini version of the entire Bible. Did you know that? How many books are in the Bible? Anybody know? 66. How many chapters are in Isaiah? There's also this amazing division that happens after chapter 39 and going into chapter 40. And when you read chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, it reads very much like the Old Testament. And then you transition into chapter 40 and it begins to read like the New Testament. It's amazing. There are so many parallels we could draw just on that alone. We could actually look at it. But it's like the Lord through Isaiah set forth the entirety of the book of Isaiah of scripture, even where the gospels are, there's four chapters in the latter portion of Isaiah that mirror the gospel message. It is remarkable. And I think for me, what I would take away before even opening into the scriptures uh, this morning is our faith holds water. And you could go into college campuses across this nation and they're telling kids all the time, your faith doesn't hold water. And I would say, no, 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 no. Our faith holds water. And if you're courageous enough to ask the questions, do the research, to look into it, you can actually dig into the veracity of Scripture and discover that this Jesus is who he says he was and therefore is worth us surrendering our lives to him. Okay. There's so much. We're gonna leave the table setting and we're gonna get into the actual portion of Scripture uh, my first point this morning, we're going we're to break this chapter into four things. Uh, we're going to talk about the setting, number one. Then we're going to talk about three charges that are actually brought in this um, setting. And it's funny we had Jay share today because it's all about a, a judge and it's about a kind of a courtroom setting. And then we're going to talk about the inbreaking hope of a savior king. Remember that little passage that we just read, but though your sins are like scarlet, that's an incredible. Um, passage. And then we're going to conclude with this whole concept that Isaiah brings forth about a refiner. Your silver has become dross. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. So we're going to conclude with sort of a sense of who Jesus is, who this coming of this little baby boy at Christmas at Advent is um, as a refiner. So number one, We open up and this vision opens up that Isaiah is having and he quotes the four kings that he is ministering under and he immediately brings forth this sense of the divine courtroom. You can see it in verse two. But we have God as the judge. That's exactly right. God is the judge. That's exactly what's happening here. Then you have on trial is the, uh, the the nation of Judah. So there's two tribes in the south that made up Judah. There was 10 tribes in the north. And in Judah is this little city called Jerusalem. So on trial is Jerusalem and Judah. Now, who's the jury? Anybody have a guess? All of heaven and all of earth. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, O earth, for the Lord has Spoken. So you have this sort of divine courtroom setting that's happening, and then you have God bringing three charges um, in this divine courtroom. Now, here's the question. What are the divine charges? How do we deal with them? Um, and and let, me, let me pause here and say, Christianity is all about a relationship with Christ Jesus, And it's about walking that relationship out in in, um, everyday life. And, And it's about the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. We just read it, but it's about our sins being red as scarlet and he makes them white as snow. But here's the thing if all you do is understand grace and you don't understand the holiness and the righteousness of God, grace is diminished. You follow me? And, and so part of what's happening here in Isaiah is you're actually beginning to understand God as a righteous judge. What is God as a holy God? What, who is God as a righteous God? Who is God as a just God? And then as you understand God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice, that he gives grace and that the blood of Christ covers our sin all of a sudden takes on significant and huge meaning. Does that make sense? So we're looking at the Old Testament sort of portion of this and more of a judgment-oriented portion, but the reason we're doing that is so that we can understand the great grace of Christ Jesus. Because in my darkest moments, the grace of Christ is so much more magnificent, right? Right? So here we have this divine courtroom. There's three charges that are being brought forth. The first charge is God raised kids, children. He reared them, he loved them, he fathered them. You can look at it in verse two and four. But he raised kids and those kids are now rebelling against their father. Those kids are now rebelling against him. I think it's easy for us as Christians to look out and point the finger at people who are rebelling, but I would cause us to pause and go, how often does it happen on a daily basis that our own hearts harden before God? That our own um, hearts harden before people? Maybe Jay is even up here sharing about an opioid crisis, and you go, oh, that's not me. That doesn't affect me. I can't believe people would even do that. What is that? The hardness of the human heart. All I have to do when someone offends me and everything in me rises up, you know what I'm talking about, where someone, someone hurts you or offends you or steps on your toe or you get in a little thing with your spouse or whatever it is, and you start bowing up, you know what I'm talking about? All I gotta do is remember the magnitude of what I've been forgiven for. And it just brings me back down to, oh Lord, have mercy. Oh Lord, have mercy. So I would call us to look at our own lives as we read Isaiah this morning. The second charge that God brings, and you see it in verse 11, 12, really 13, 14, 15, is their religion was external and hypocritical and devoid of personal relationship. Now, God gets like, he he, he says some strong things in here. Like, um, let's just read a few of them. I have no pleasure in your sacrifices, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. This is all the Old Testament prescription for worship, right? I hate your festivals with all my being. I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. He's actually setting forth that he is not interested in dead religion. He is not interested in people who sort of go through the motions externally and their hearts are far from him. He's interested in actually people whose hearts and minds are surrendered, who walk in humility and who are actually embracing a a journey with him. So my greatest uh, fear, if I even opened up my heart for just a minute, my greatest fear as a pastor is that we drift from doing church in a gritty, authentic, relational, like, you know, we're, we're like doing life alongside one another and stepping on each other's toes and asking each other's forgiveness and, and moving through that journey of life to becoming um, polished and slick and perfect. Because I think if we toe up to that line and cross that line, the Lord is not pleased with things that look great on the outside and when our insides are far from him. That's what he's saying here. And I think my greatest uh, fear as a pastor is that we would ever just go through the motions. I don't wanna go through the motions. I actually wanna live a life and I wanna, I wanna lead a church and I'd rather have a small church of people who were truly attempting, not perfect, not perfect, we're not gonna be perfect, perfect. But a, a small group of people, or maybe it's a large group of people, but regardless, I'd rather a group of people who are actively applying the grace of God and the message of the cross into their lives and living it out daily in an authentic way. That's the power of the gospel in real life. Next week, we're gonna do Isaiah 6, and we're gonna talk actually about worship because I think there's a crisis in worship. And I, I will, parry awesome job today. I mean, that hallelujah, oh my goodness. I was like, yes. But you'll even notice some of the songs that we're singing are actually old. And and if you're younger, you might go, I've never heard that before. Or you might even kind of turn your nose up and go, that's old school. Uh, But here's the deal. I don't care whether it's new or old. I'm interested in the heart And he starts singing, hallelujah. I can't sing, but he starts singing hallelujah. And I'm like, yes, Jesus. Oh my goodness, we can worship you. That's what this is about. I love that we're still in a cafeteria and we won't be here forever and the Lord may even give us a building and I'm almost scared of the day because I'm like, no, no, no. There's something so beautiful about the gritty, authentic, raw, sort of like it's not perfect and we're coming together to worship the Lord and the chairs are uncomfortable and the temperature's always a little bit wrong and the tables are kind of weird and you know, but God's here, right? He's here. I mean, that's what this is about. The whole book of Isaiah is Emmanuel, God with us, oh my goodness, that the King Jesus would come down and walk with us and talk with us and open His scripture to us and lead us and get in our marriages and get in our families and get out into our jobs and go with us when we go out there. I mean, yes. Can we do church like that, please? I want to be a part of that kind of church. Merry Christmas.) <sighs> I think the other thing that we have got to at least acknowledge here is, is, is when you read um, all of these things, that, that people are actually bringing sacrifices, people are actually um, doing what was prescribed to be done, what you have to read through the lines is church is growing. I'm saying church, but it would be, it'd be the temple in Jerusalem. It would be people, um, crowds are gathering and they're going through the motions of worship. So here's the warning, here's the warning. Just because people are gathering doesn't mean God's in the house. Just because there's big crowds doesn't mean that the Lord is present. Just because more people come through the door and more money is given and you're even even doing good things does not mean that King Jesus is here in the midst. And that's what we're after. That is what this is all about. And if we can do church like that, I'm all in. And we start getting into the little, moon, well, we got to do this and we got to do that, and we're jumping through hoops. I, I, I don't want anything to do with that because I don't like who I am in that situation. But in this situation where Jesus is lifted up, oh, yes, yes. Lord, would you break forth on Salt Box with worship? Not just singing, not just great lyrics not just songwriting, not even just the release of albums, but would you break forth in salt box with worship that wells up from deep within our beings and overflows into our lives, that affects our marriages and our families and our kids and our work. Lord, would you be pleased to move on this place with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit in worship? And Lord, would you lay your hands graciously on Perry and Jocelyn, Rick, Graceland, Walter, Tim, the ones who get up here and lead us. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're sitting out there today and you're going, "Michael, I don't even know how authentic I am. I don't know how vulnerable I am. I would encourage you, find a friend in the room, ask him to coffee or lunch, and sit down and start being real. Because when you start being authentic, When you leave the perfection behind, when you start sharing with one another, the Lord is in that. That's discipleship. That's life change. That's the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus at work. The third thing, the third um, accusation or charge that is brought here, it is huge, I got to say. Oh, my goodness. You're looking at it up there. You do not defend or seek justice for the oppressed, the fatherless, the orphan, the alien, the impoverished, or the widow. I want to be careful here because I am, um, I am adamantly opposed to ever using this stage for political reasons. Okay? That's my commitment before God. I think, it, I think that crosses a line and I'd be amiss. But I also want to say something about the American state that we're in is the the evangelical American church has taken a stand on some key issues. And I'm not speaking to those key issues, but what I am saying is they have absolutely, we, we, I've been a pastor for 10 years, we have failed to defend the fatherless, to stand up for the orphan, to take up for the widow, to find a place for the alien. You hear that? Alien refugee. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. God is so into helping people in that situation. We must as a church be about that. And after this service, we're gonna pray and we're gonna worship. And then we're actually gonna walk over to some tables and we're gonna pack some boxes. And the point of those boxes is not so you and I can walk out of here feeling good about ourselves. The point of those boxes is actually so that we can rally together next Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And somebody needs to bring some donuts, by the way, and somebody else needs to bring some coffee. And if you wanna do that, please tell Carol out, there's Carol back there. But here's the deal, the point is that we actually take those boxes over there and we sit with people who have made some poor decisions in their life and they are processing and transitioning from a place where they've been confined and locked up and they're moving back to being members of society. And you know what I wanna see? I wanna see a church of people that is built on people who have repented and come back to Christ Jesus and gotten their feet built on the rock and walked out the gospel. I've got a testimony, my guess is you've got one too. But there was a point in my life where I had lived in deception for seven long years. And the Lord sort of um, brought these, this, this veil of deception off of my eyes and the weight of my own sin crashed down upon me in such a way that I had to drink deeply of his grace and of his mercy because I was so busted up I couldn't do it by myself. We're going to see some people next Saturday who are in that same spot. I hope that Saltbox is a place, as long as we're a church, that when people walk through our doors, wherever we gather and wherever we meet, that they find a group of people who is willing to love, who is willing to forgive, who is willing to embrace, who is willing to call them to repentance, but who always embraces them with relationship before we require that they change their lives or clean up their lives or do anything different because it's in the context of relationship that the transformation to becoming more like Christ happens. Let me pray there. Lord, would you make Saltbox a church that champions the father, the fatherless, that champions the orphan, the champions The widow, the champions, the oppressed, the champions, the downtrodden, the champions, the one who is left out in the cold. Lord, would you help us become that church that carries out justice in our city? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Jesus launched his ministry, I'm not going to go here at the moment, but when Jesus launched his ministry, he stood up in a little synagogue in Nazareth and he read Isaiah 61 and that's that's what it reads it said this is what i'm about is going to be about helping and bringing justice for those who are downtrodden that's the ministry of Christ Jesus ah oh, okay my third point what we have here is the inbreaking hope of a savior king and it happens in verse 18 it says Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. Your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be as wool. Now, Scarlet and crimson um, in this day and age, everyone would have understood what he was talking about here, but it came from an insect that was put in a big pot and it was boiled and it made this deep red purplish color and it was like this thick syrup almost when the, when the boiling pot was done. And then they would take garments and they would actually dunk the garments into um, this dye and then they would hang it up and dry it. And this dye was so pervasive that if you got it on any of your clothing, it was there forever. You ever had on a new shirt and worked with bleach, and it splashes up on you, and you're like, oh, or get it on your blue jeans, you know what I'm talking about? This dye was like that. It was it was so pervasive that if this red crimson got on you, you could not get it out. This reminded me of a line um, in a Shakespeare play, and I'm going to use a word, it's uh, It's actually a King James word, it's a cuss word in today's language, but Lady Macbeth in the Shakespeare play says, out, damn, spot. That's actually a King James word, it has to do with uh, damnation is when someone is sent to hell for eternity. And what Lady Macbeth is actually saying there is, she has blood on her hands, she has killed someone, there's no longer literal blood on her hands, her hands have been washed, but her soul is stained with her own sin. And she's actually saying, I can't get this red blood off of me. It's stained me, and I'm dirty, and I can't get clean. And what's happening here is Jesus, God, is literally saying through the prophet Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now, I think I might even have this on a slide. Do I have Matthew 27? Oh, praise God. I'm smarter than I look. I love this passage because it brings this thing full circle. It's like it makes it, it brings the scriptures alive. But, but the Romans are literally beating Jesus, King Jesus, our King Jesus. And they, they, it says they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Now Now church, get this, like go with me here. Though your sin is like scarlet, it will be white as snow. I mean, it is so powerful because Jesus, they put this same scarlet, the scarlet made from the same insects, the same color that if it gets on you, it is like permanent on your hands and on your clothes. And they put that same thing on Jesus and it's symbolic of Jesus taking your sin and mine. Come on, this is the gospel of Christ Jesus. They literally laid on him your sin and mine, the sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It is is so magnanimous that Isaiah captured this 750 years before it happened. How did he even do that? That is the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit at work in his heart and in his mind. And Christ Jesus became sin in our place. Oh my goodness, someone say amen. Amen. I'm preaching way better than y'all are responding. Come on. God. I think the other thing that must be pointed out there is you get this symbolic trading: my my sin, my robe, my unrighteousness, and it's like that robe comes off of me. And who does it go on? Christ Jesus on the cross. And, and then you got Jesus. The white robe, the purity, sinless life that he's lived. And who gets that robe? We do. Every one of us who comes to him and says, Lord, would you forgive me? He welcomes in. I mean, it's this beautiful thing. It's that same picture when you read about the prodigal son and he appears way, way on the distance. And what's the father do? The father runs to him. And what's the first thing he does? The ring and the robe. See, there it is. It's like Jesus, this scarlet robe that these Roman soldiers, all they were doing was mocking, all they were doing was funning around. They had no idea that they were actually crucifying the king of the universe. And they had no idea that what they were doing was absolutely imperative because it had been foreordained and called from the beginning of time. And 750 years before it actually happened, Isaiah penned it right here. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as... Somebody needs to hear that today. You will never get me soft-pedaling sin because I believe that when we apply the grace and the cross of Christ to sin, all power on heaven and earth is made available to forgive us, to transform us, to make us new and to change us, and that's why we're gonna load up some boxes and go down to a little group of people who are hopeless. We don't have to say anything or do anything other than smile, give some hugs, drink a cup of coffee, have a donut, ask their name, give them a little Christmas present, and who knows, maybe the Lord will open up your ministry next Saturday morning. But we see this inbreaking hope of a savior King, Jesus. The fourth thing we see here, it's in verses twenty-two and twenty-five. But you actually go, and this is where the, the chapter concludes but you actually get to see this concept of, of God being a refiner, and you get this the, the dross and a refining of silver or gold, and there was two different ways, as I understand it, that a refiner would actually work, and uh, one way was actually holding the bar of gold or silver into the fire, and as they would do that, the impurities would rise to the top. Some of the impurities would actually um, burn off other of the impurities, they'd have to pull it out of the fire and either brush it off or actually blow it off the bar that they were working on. The other way that a refiner would, would um, work is they would, would work in a um, sort of a bowl or like a, almost like a cauldron that was over this big fire, and um, they'd put the gold or the silver in it, and again, the impurities would float to the top. I don't know about you, but when I get in a crisis situation and things are ugly in my life, guess what floats to the top? All the ugliness of Michael. All you gotta do is squeeze me on every side and guess what happens you know, between me and Abby? Come on. Am I gonna get impatient? Yeah. Am I gonna get grumpy? Yeah. Am I gonna be unkind? Now, now here's the thing I want you to see. You get this, this beautiful imagery of Isaiah um, talking about Jesus as the great refiner. Our, is there a fire in your life right now and our impurities rising to the top? I would guess so. If, if you're like in a great spot today and you're like, man, things are good, I'd say buckle up because they probably won't be for long. <laughs> you know, if things are horrible and you're like, I, I'm literally at the end of my rope and this is terrible, I would also say, hang on because the grace of Christ and his mercies rise every morning. Now, you got this refiner, and whether he's um, or she is doing it in a bar that goes into the, the, the furnace, or whether it's sitting on top of the furnace, the um, the impurities continue to rise to the top. And as those impurities rise to the top, they either literally blow them off, they skim them off, or they burn up. But regardless, those impurities are now gone. I read an article because I was interested to know when. Uh, when does the refiner know that the gold or the silver is refined? They heat it up again and more impurities come to the top. And they heat it up again. It's very sensitive because the refiner can never take his eyes off of this little cauldron. You guys can come on up. They never take, he he can't take his eyes off of this because the gold or the silver can actually burn up. And so he'll heat it again and the impurities come to the top. And the refiner knows that it's fully purified when he can look into it and see perfectly his reflection. That's when he knows that the gold or the silver that he's working with is purified. Oh, that the day would happen when he puts me under pressure And what squeezes out of me is Jesus. Oh, I long for the day. It's not here yet, I assure you. (laughs) You can go ahead, Barry. I watched an interview, or I actually read it, about Tiger Woods a few years ago. And in the interview, uh, someone was sitting in the room, a reporter, and they stood up, and it's when Tiger's whole mess sort of came to light. And the reporter stood up and said, "Um, Tiger, how did you lie to so many people about so many things for so long? And it's like dead silent in the room. And he said, because I lied to myself first. Here we are at Christmas. And I'm not sure how it happens, but every year there's a battle that I think we can get lost in the battle for things, the battle about how our kids feel, the battle of what's under our Christmas tree. And we start losing that what this is really about is the great refiner that takes my scarlet sin and your scarlet sin and makes it as white as snow. May 3rd, 2008. I was standing on Carolina Beach Road and I was homeless. And the weight of where I had lived for the previous seven years was crushing me. And it was like suddenly... What I couldn't see and the self deception and the lies that I had been telling myself were all of a sudden fractured and coming off. And I could see. And the weight of my own sin was such that I I didn't even know if I could if I was gonna live. And I'm not sure that I understood the grace of the Lord Jesus until that moment, really. I've got a friend who says to me upon occasion, Michael, with where you've walked, you understand the grace of the Lord Jesus in a way that I never hope I have to. And if that's true, may we also be preachers of the gospel of Christ Jesus and deliver a grace that is so real and so powerful that we give lost people hope that they too can find salvation and they can find deliverance and they can get their feet back on the ground and they can walk with Christ Jesus through addictions, through loss, through pain, through broken lives. I love Christmas. I don't love all the Stuff that's been piled around Christmas, but I love Christmas. I love the red color, and I see red sweaters out there because those red sweaters remind me of this verse. My sins were as scarlet, but now they're white as snow. I don't know where you are this morning on the journey. You may be sitting on something that's, you know is scarlet, and you got to bring it to King Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, if you bring it, you will find forgiveness in life. You may be sitting in a spot where you find yourself judgmental or frustrated or pointing your finger at other people instead of letting the Lord change you. But here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that when we come to him for the first time, And then when we come to him every time thereafter, he makes old things new. There is not a day that you will come to Christ Jesus that he will not take your scarlet robe and put it on the back of King Jesus as he stood before the Roman soldiers that day. See, God exists outside of time. He was there at the beginning and the middle and the end all at the same time. And he knows who you were and who you are and who you're becoming. And I want to invite us as a church, as we close with a song, to let King Jesus into your heart. Let him begin to transform who you are. Let him minister to you, to forgive you, to change you, and to shape you.